Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a wonderful sunny day here in Kenya and Downhome Trinity Baptist. My name is Paul Kashungi and I'm one of the members of this church. And I'd like to welcome you today and also to those who are tuning in who haven't yet arrived uh, from Trinity Baptist Church. So before we begin on our subject of why did Christ die, uh, I'd like us to start off with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this day. We are so grateful to you for your goodness and kindness, which has been revealed to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, in him we, we have received reconciliation with you, and we have been brought into your family and even into your church. And so this morning, Lord, as we draw near to you through the access that we have through him, as we come near to worship and to hear you speak to us in your word, I pray, Lord, that you shall help us, that we shall have uh, hearts that hear, uh, ears as well which hear, and eyes that see, so that we would see all these things uh, which you have prepared for us. And I pray for all those who shall take us through uh, the worship service today, that you shall be with them and grant that their spirit, uh, that your spirit would be upon them so that they would preach with unction and teach so that we might even see souls saved and uh, believers strengthened. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin, so the title of the Sunday School today is Why Did Christ Die? Uh, so we are going to take a break this week from here in the main church from doing the Sunday School on Temptation, and that's because uh, Pastor Eric is not feeling well. But so what is happening today is I was to teach the Distinctive Doctrines class for the new members, and so we're just going to continue on where they were. So it will be a refresher course for the rest of us, won't it? Uh, so the subject is the death of Christ, or why did Christ die? And I want to begin uh, by asking you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have some very solemn but also clear and beautiful words from the Apostle Paul, where he reasons concerning the death and resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and I'll read from verse 12. It reads, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those... Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ <coughs> have perished. 
If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, if in, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Then he jumped to verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection. Sorry, verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And then it goes on and talks about Peter goes, uh, sorry, Paul goes on to make his, the argument that he was making. But from those verses that we have read, it, it, is, it is clear that the Apostle Paul believed that Jesus Christ had died. He assumes it in his argument. He assumes that the Lord Jesus Christ had died. And so he's making a case for the resurrection of Christ. But I thought of these verses especially by way of beginning for us to help us see the, the important, how important this subject is, by what he says, the argument he makes in verse 12 to all the way to around verse 19. And his point is, he says that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Uh, one of, the, one of the things that makes Christianity unique is our belief that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and he was raised from the dead. No other religion in the world makes such a claim. No other religion says, like Christ, the Christian faith says, look to Jesus as the only one who can bring you to God by who he is, and what he has done. And so Paul can say that if we deny this fundamental truth, then we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that God has raised Christ and he did not raise him. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so just from reading those few verses, we see that Paul considered this truth central to the Christian message. And so it is, and that is why this subject comes in our distinctive doctrines class. Uh, it comes here because we believe that this is what we ought to believe, uh, well, want to be a member of this church, but more importantly, unless you put you, you believe these things, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved unless you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took on human flesh, was born of the house of David. Unless you believe these things, you cannot be saved from your sins. And so this subject is a most solemn one. Now, <clears throat> in... in uh, 
in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says that the substance of his message is the word of the cross. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says that for the word of the cross is holy to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says also in 1 Corinthians 1.23, affirming just what he has been saying in verse 18, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Then he also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that, that phrase, and as we go along, I will talk about that phrase, Jesus Christ and him crucified, represents all that Jesus did. So you, when he says Jesus Christ and him crucified, Paul also is assuming his resurrection and ascension to and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. All that is assumed in this, because if Christ did not rise from the dead, then his death is meaningless. Uh, <clears throat> so that's what is encompassed. But now when we talk about the death of Christ, so what I want to do is, I want us to talk about two things under this heading. I hope we will be able to do all of them. Uh, the first one is, for what did Christ die? In other words, what did Christ's death accomplish? And then we will answer a question which is close to that, for whom did Christ die? Now, for those of you who were there last week in the Distinctive Doctrines class, we looked, or Pastor Murungi took you through this question of for what did Christ die? Uh, and you, the part that remained was the point of for whom did Christ die? But what I want to do for the benefit of the others is to briefly go through that before we look into the subject of for whom did Christ die? So, before we talk about for whom did Christ die, I think it is important to understand that first, first and foremost, that if the cross is not central, uh, it is not the true gospel message. And so, one of the things that we have to affirm is the crucifixion of Christ. The crucifixion of Christ is significant for some reasons. Uh, for us, we need to believe it for some reasons. Number one, the manner of Christ's death is significant. It is significant that Christ died on the cross. Uh, Christ, if I could use this language, the way the Bible is, the way God revealed the Old Testament. Christ could not have died in another way for it to have significance for us. Uh, in Galatians, Paul tells us that Christ by his death became a curse for us. Christ became a curse for his people by dying on the tree. Why? And then he, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, uh, cursed is the one who dies on the tree. And in the Old Testament, you remember that was there. In, uh, it was shameful. It was considered a curse from God 
when somebody died on a tree, uh, was hanged somewhere. So, for example, when Joshua conquered some of the kings of Canaan, what did he do to them? He hanged their bodies on a tree somewhere. And then, of course, he said by evening, he had them removed. But nevertheless, we see that idea that he who dies on a tree is cursed. And so when we point people to the cross, when the scriptures point us to the cross of Christ, they are pointing us to a Christ who was cursed. And he was cursed not because of himself, but for the sake of his people. Now, having that in mind, we also have to remember and talk about this event as a historical event. Uh, remember when I took you through the Sunday school on the Gospels, I explained, I reminded you that we need to view the Gospels as a historical account of what took place. They may have different purposes for why they write their books, why they wrote their gospel, the gospel writers, but for each of them, they are recording a historical event. And so also the death of Christ is a historical event. Our confession of faith says, let me get it, in, on, in chapter 8, in chapter 8 of our confession, uh, section 6, I believe, chapter 8, verse 6 of our confession, uh, it says, it starts this way, although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday and today and forever. So there in the confession, the writers of the confession are saying that God has had a people in every age from the beginning of the world and he shall continue to have them until the last day when Christ returns. But their redemption, the price of their redemption was not actually paid until Christ was incarnated. So here they are indirectly affirming that the death or the praying of our redemption is a historical event. It is a historical event. And we should, to deny the historical nature of this event is to deny this, is to deny the work of God in, our, in history to save. And surely if you deny that Christ died, on the cross uh, roughly 2,000 years ago, then how can you be a Christian? Because the Bible presents this as a historical event. Our redemption, we, 
ought always to be careful not to fall into the trap of thinking too theoretical, as though this is just a theory somewhere that is not based on anything. No, the Bible, the New Testament, and even the Old Testament, when, when it talks about this, it talks about this as a historical event that has, if I could even say, eternal consequences. It has consequences for those who lived before the event. It has consequences for those who lived at the time of the event. And it has consequences for us and everyone who has lived since that event occurred. I think I have emphasized that point well enough. It is a historical event. And so when you read the gospel accounts, and each gospel writer talks about this, which shows its importance. When you read it, they're talking that Christ died on the cross, then you should be sure that they are speaking the truth. And it's a truth that we must believe and be willing to defend, even to the point of death. So, <clears throat> Galatians 3.13, we've said it talks about uh, the the form of death of crucifixion was a curse. But then in John 19.30, we see that Christ said that it is finished. After the three hours of darkness, what did Christ say? It is finished. In other words, he had accomplished, uh, he had paid the penalty for our sins. And one of the significant things that happened is the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. We read that in Matthew 27, 51. And it was done by an act of God. So there was an earthquake and the curtain torn. What was that saying? That it is God who has broken. God who has broken that wall of hostility, if I can use that language, that existed between man and God, or rather between God and man because of sin. Now, when we talk about Christ's death, and here I will go through it somewhat quickly, I will try to go through it somewhat quickly, there are terms that the scripture uses which helps us to understand for what did Christ die? For what did Christ die? Or the meaning of Christ's death. The first one is sacrifice. The first one is sacrifice. The death of Christ was a sacrifice. It was not an example. Some people, some people, there are people out there who say that the significance of the death of Christ is, an, is as an example. Beloved, that is not what the scriptures tell us. Hebrews 9.26, stand there. In Hebrews 9.26, what does the writer to the Hebrews tell us? Hebrews 9.26, he tells us, <clears throat> it's speaking about, uh, let's start in verse 23. He says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than this. For Christ, you see the context is sacrifices, he's 
comparing the old t- system of the Mosaic system in the Old Testament with what Christ has done. And he says, so he uses the language of sacrifices and says, for Christ has entered in, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. Now, say, let me take for granted, let me assume that there is someone here who has never read the Old Testament and who does not understand the significance of a sacrifice. What was a sacrifice? So, when God gave Israel a law, a nation, and he said that he would be their God, there was still the issue of their sins. How were they to atone for their sins? So if you sinned, you are guilty before God. And we know that the wages of sin is death. We know that on the day Adam and Eve sinned, they died. And them also with all their posterity, which is everyone. So how are the Israelites to gain temporal uh, forgiveness from God? It was by a kind of substitution. So you would take a lamb or a ram without blemish and you would take it before the priest and the priest would kill this animal. And that animal's dying signified the punishment which you deserved before God. That is what the whole idea of sacrifice. And so this animal is paying the price for your sin. On the day of atonement, which was like the official, like an official day of seeking forgiveness from God, the priest would have, would offer a sacrifice for himself, his own sins, but then he would offer a sacrifice for his people. There would be two, <clears throat> there would be two animals. One would be killed to take, pay the penalty, and another would have its would, would have, the priest would lay his hands on it and the sins would be tra- imputed to that animal and then it would be sent away. But that is the idea of sacrifice and it's saying that this is exactly what Christ has done for his people. We will come back to this when we talk about for whom did Christ die, but you recognize that there on the day of atonement when the priest offered that sacrifice, he offered it for the people of God so that their sins were forgiven. This, and so Christ, when he offered this sacrifice, he was offering it for his people. And we will see who those, who those people are. Then there is the concept of blood. Now the concept of blood, uh, <clears throat> blood, the, now, again, the manner of death is important. So in the Old Testament, when an animal was brought before God, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough to strangle it. It wasn't enough for you to, to kill it by any other way other than 
to cut it, that it bleeds, that it pours, it sheds forth its blood. Now we know that blood signifies uh, life. And so when that blood is poured out, what is, what is it symbolizing? It is symbolizing the giving of life by the pouring of life. So when the blood was poured, it signified death, the death of the animal, but also, of course, life for the person for whom that blood was shed. That was how the old, that was the, the way the Old Testament set it out, and this is what Christ has done. Now in, and so we see, so the blood signifies death. We see, for example, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul says that, speaking of Christ, that God put, uh, sorry, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So, blood there represents death. It's obvious. It wouldn't have been enough if Jesus there on the cross went and he cut his hand and poured some blood there and then he went. That, that would not have been enough. His blood there represents his giving of his life. And so it signifies his death. So when he said that the blood of Jesus takes away uh, our sin, we do not mean, it, it's not necessarily the liquid blood in and of itself. Jesus did not have different blood than us. Uh, I would say, I don't know what blood type Jesus had, but he had a blood type uh, that is one of the various blood types that we have. I would even venture to say, since Jesus was a Middle Eastern man, he probably had a blood type that people in those areas usually have. So it was normal blood, but his blood symbolized his life, or rather, or should I say, his death for us. Then the next term that I would want us to talk about is propitiation. Propitiation. But before we talk about propitiation, it would be good to talk about another, another word called expiation. Now, propitiation is used in the scripture. I don't know if expiation is used in, is it used? Yeah, I'm not sure where it is, but expiation leads to propitiation. Now, let me explain what those words mean. Expiation means the removal of guilt. So when you expiate, you remove guilt. Now, sin has caused us to be guilty before God. So when we say that Christ has expiated his people... What we mean by that is that Christ, by his death, has removed the guilt which we had. And so, Christ, by his death, has paid the price of your sin. And so, that guilt is no longer on you. And so, expiation leads to propitiation. Now, we've just read in Romans 3.25 that God put forward, that is Christ, as a propitiation by his blood. What does the word propitiation mean? The word propitiation means 
to remove or to change from a disposition of wrath to one of favor. So, if I am angry at you and you come, either you or someone else comes and does something to remove that which is causing offense towards me, that person has expiated you. But by their doing that, they have also propitiated me. They have turned my wrath to favor. Are you understanding? So expiation leads to propitiation. So when he says that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by his blood, he is saying that when Christ shed his blood, it covered our sins. That is expiation. He removed our guilt. And because of that, God was propitiation. His wrath was turned to favor. So when we read the word propitiation, when we see it in the New Testament, that is what it's talking about. It is talking about God turning his wrath. Sorry, yeah, propitiation means that God's wrath has been turned to favor, to become divine favor. That's what the word means. And we see again, it's by his blood. And what have we said? His blood represents his? 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 Okay, someone raised their hand and gave an answer then. What have we said? What does the blood of Christ symbolize? Yes. His death. Yes, it symbolizes his death. So, <clears throat> that is what those words mean. Now, there are other terms which we will look at, such as ransom. Ransom. Now, what is a ransom? Uh, if you have watched a movie where someone was kidnapped, what do the kidnappers ask for? They ask for a, a ransom price. And the Bible presents Christ's death as paying a ransom. Now, who is it paying a ransom to? Uh, Matthew 20, 28, what does Jesus say? Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28 that the Son of Man came to do what? Matthew 20, 28. He says that even as the Son of Man came to be served, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does the Bible say that we are slaves to? Uh, Romans, we've been going through Romans. What does Romans say we are slaves to? Huh? To sin. Is sin the only thing we are slaves to? Huh? No. Before Christ redeems, before Christ pays a ransom, we are slaves to what else? Why are you afraid to say it? Are we not slaves to the law? Are we not under the law? What does it mean to be under something? You know, in our modern day years, when we hear words like under, we don't fully feel their force. 
when you are un- when, but we understand things like we are under the thumb of someone. When you're under someone's thumb, what, are, what does that mean? You're captive to them. If we could use a Kiswahili term, umekaliwa. <laughs> yeah, uh, for our brother Miller, kukaliwa means to be sat on. Yeah, so, <clears throat> yeah, so we were under the law, but in Romans 7 we see, but by the death of Christ, we died to sin. That's Romans 6. In Romans 7, we died to the law. What's the analogy in Romans 7 of a woman with two husbands? A woman is not with two husbands. That's the illustration Pastor Mrungi used in his sermon. But what does Romans 7 say? It says that a woman is not bound to her husband after, after he's dead, right? And in the same way, we died to the law in Christ. And so we are not under the law, but under grace. And we, we're not going to delve into what that means, but suffice it to say that we have been ransomed from being under the law, from being under sin, but also from Satan's power, right? We have been ransomed from that. Now, as we talk about these things, I want us to recognize that these are definite things which Christ's death accomplished. They are not potential things that Christ did. They are actual things that Christ did. And understanding that point will be significant for our understanding for whom did Christ die. We are seeing here that by, doing, by Christ dying, he is actually accomplishing something. We are seeing that the Bible talks about him offering the sacrifice of himself, pouring out his blood, expiating us, propitiating us. We've seen now he paid a ransom. Then we also see in another word, redemption. Redemption. And what does this word redemption mean? So redemption is a continuation of ransom. So when you pay a ransom, what do you accomplish? You redeem that which you are paying the ransom for. Now, and so that means that we were saved, we were redeemed from the place where we were to another place. We talk about redeeming bonga points. What are we redeeming? We are redeeming something that is stored somewhere else we are, redeem- we are removing it from that place and bringing it to another place, which is what? Our immediate use. It's the same thing here. When Christ saved us from, when Christ died, his death and resurrection brought us freedom from Satan, from Satan's power. He brought us freedom from enslavement to sin. He brought us freedom from uh, being under the law by which we, the law would cut us. The law would sh- kill us, as Paul would say, when I saw the law, it killed. The law showed us the right way, but it could not save us. It brought condemnation. 
This is not to say that the law is not good. Paul himself says that the law is good, it's spiritual, but it's we who are not spiritual. So <clears throat> we have redemption. We, we see that word used, 1 Corinthians 6.20. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, Paul says, You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were redeemed at a price. So you, and so therefore, you do what? Glorify God in your body. This is an exhortation he gives to believers. He reminds them of what Christ has said, and he says that Christ bought you. Then there is also the, another term. So we look at two more terms. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. So the Bible speaks of our salvation as a reconciliation. We are being reconciled to God. The death of Christ accomplished reconciliation. When Christ died... He removed guilt from us by taking it on on himself and paying for it. By that act of removing guilt from us, and of course our righteousness being imputed to him, sorry, his righteousness being imputed to us, he turned God's wrath to divine favor. And what, what was the result of that? Reconciliation between God and man became possible. Now, Jesus may have been the one who uh, died on the cross to do all these things, but this is not to say that the Father uh, was needed, or, or rather, did not have any hand in this. It is the Father who because out of his love for the world, he sent his son. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not uh, perish, but have eternal life. And so this reconciliation, it is God who has made it possible. The father who has made it possible by sending his son. It isn't that Jesus was, or the Son of God was there in the middle trying to bring two warring parties together. No, it is that the Godhead, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned how they would save us. Out of love for us. And so this reconciliation is something which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had planned to do. But it, what has it done? It has brought us together. And so what do we read in, in Romans 5, that wonderful and blessed chapter? Romans 5, verse 10. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
Do you ever think of your salvation as that? You know, it's so easy for us to fall into a works-based kind of sanctification. Uh, we believe, yeah, God justify, justified us. And, yeah, he's done his part, now it's my turn. No. And so, before you can pray, you need to have lived in your thinking a very holy and righteous life. You won't be able to pray, uh, access God, unless you have been leading a very holy life. And as much as the Bible calls us to walk in holiness, we will always have that reconciliation with God. And so if you have, even when you have been walking in sin, the throne of God is open to you to confess your sins, to repent. You have access to, you don't need to go and do a, some good works, feel good and then go to God. No, you just go to God. You confess your sins. When you have, when you are struggling with sin, again, you go to God for help. Why? Because you have been reconciled to him. Do you know being a member of a church is a manifestation of reconciliation with God? Because we are saved out of the world and into his church, into his body. Bible uses such intimate language. You are saved from outside of the body of Christ and into his body. Uh, another intimate relationship, we are brought out of enmity with God as we've read here and you are adopted into God's family. These are, these are manifestations of God's reconciliation. And this is what God has done for you if you are in Christ. Whether you like it or not, if I can use that language, this is what God has done for you. Whether you think you are worthy of it or not, and you, no one is worthy of it, you have been given this gift by God. The final word that I would want to talk about before we talk about for whom Christ died is obedience. All of these things that Christ has done, from his coming to this earth, taking on human nature, uh, his whole life, and up until his death, this was a work of obedience, which has guaranteed for us all these things. Ultimately, redemption and reconciliation. By Christ's obedience, we have been made partakers of the new covenant. We have been made partakers of the divine nature, as Peter would say, imagine that. All this has come because Christ obeyed. Romans 5 again, what does Paul say that as one sin brought condemnation to all, so also one by one's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's what we read. Verse 18 of Romans 5, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's talking about what Christ did. Adam's sin brought condemnation for all of mankind. And Christ's one act of righteousness, <coughs> which is speaking mainly of all that 
his whole life. It's not speaking about that there is one specific act of righteousness which Christ performed. <coughs> it's speaking about all that he did. By his life, by his death, Christ has obeyed God and has therefore purchased for us the righteousness by which we can stand before God as accepted. So we are justified, and it is Christ's righteousness that has been imputed to us. Now, <clears throat> we come now then to the tricky and uh, often uh, sometimes juicy for some people, sometimes hard for some people to swallow, the subject of for whom did Christ die, or what we would call the extent of the atonement. What did Christ's death, who did it, who was it made for? Who was Christ's death made for? For those of you who have embraced the doctrines of grace, uh, perhaps this has been the one which, for most people, usually this is the one that they struggle with. I personally did, I, interestingly, my wife and I did not struggle with this one. I struggled with total depravity and she struggled with, one aspect of total depravity, and she struggled with uh, perseverance of the saints. But nevertheless, this is a subject which many people struggle with. And of course, it's an understandable struggle. Why do people struggle with this? Because uh, what there are usually two sides of this issue. On the one hand, there are those who say that Christ died for everyone in the world. And the other side says that no, Christ died for the elect, those whom God had planned to save, those for whom... Uh, those, only those who will be saved are the ones for whom Christ died. And those who say that Christ died for every single individual accuse the, the other side of limiting the love of God. Whereas the, the other side, those who claim that Christ died for the elect only, accuse the other side of limiting his power. Now, I want to read for you what our church's confession says. Uh, <clears throat> the 1689, section 8, verse 5, it says this, or the chapter 8, section 5, it says, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up unto God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an, an, sorry, and purchased an everlasting inheritance <coughs> in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. So therein our confession says that all these things which Christ has done, he has done them for who? for his people, for the people that the Father gave unto him. Now, so we believe, which side do we, do we stand on? Those who are accused of limiting God's what? God's love. Yes, we are accused of limiting God's love. Now, the confession says that God died for the elect, 
for those who are given to him by the Father. John 6, 37 to 39. John 17, verse 24 would say this. Uh, <clears throat> now, let's read John 6, 37 to 39. I think it's, it's most important for us to see that we are not just believing a system of doctrine. We are believing what the scriptures say. John 6, 37, it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now there Jesus is saying that there is a group of people that the Father is giving to me and I will never cast them out. He is also saying that the will of the Father is concerning those people is that the Son does not lose them. And he says that the will of the Father is that he should raise them up on the last day. That is, that they should have eternal life. Now, how do they have eternal life? That's the question that we must ask. This group of people, how does Christ give them, how does Christ guarantee that they will be raised on the last day? That's a question that we have to ask ourselves as we reason with what he's saying. Is it not by his death? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Doesn't that talk about being the raising of the dead? So it is by the giving of the son. And what did the son come to do? John 10. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I lay down my life for my sheep. So Christ is there talking about his, is there saying that what he did, what are we believing in Christ for? Because he's the one, he's the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And how does he lay down his life? By his death. So even from just looking at the plan of God and how the, the reason for why the son was sent by the father, we have, we see that Christ died for a specific number of people. Not for everyone in the world. There are these are verses that are clearly teaching that Jesus did not die for everyone in the world, but for only a specific number of people. There are many, as the scriptures say, but it's not every single individual. Now, before I, we look at some other verses, let me say this. I have labored to take you through the meaning of Christ's death for this one reason, that you might ask for yourself this question. If you're struggling with this question, think about it this way. Christ, we've seen that the Bible teaches that Christ's death expiated, he removed guilt. He didn't actually make it potential, he actually did it. He, he, he also propitiated, he turned God's wrath towards divine favor. He actually did it. He didn't make it potential. He actually accomplished that. His works were actual obedience, which achieved something. 
He paid, he actually paid a ransom. He removed, he paid the ransom, that is, he removed some from under the power of Satan, from under the power of sin, from under the law. He actually did this. These are things that the scripture says that he did. Now, let us look at, even before we look at whether the Bible says there will be people in hell, let us look around us. Is, do we see this in everyone around us? Do you see the same things God is doing in you outside in everyone in the world? No, you don't. Are there some of your relatives who have died whom you in grief could say they did not know Christ? They did not know his salvation? Well, if that is true, then obviously then Christ did not die for everyone. Because if Christ had done these things for every single individual, we would all be going to heaven. And so it's not simply that, you know, people accuse us that we're just following a system. Once you believe that we are all depraved, once you believe that God chose us, once you believe that, yeah, once... You believe, yeah, once you believe those first two, then you necessarily have to believe the next, that Christ's death is for only the elect. But does not the atonement itself, the death of Christ, necessitate that we believe it was not for everyone? That's what we, we see. Jesus, what Jesus did, he accomplished for some... He, when he said it is finished, he actually said it is finished. He actually meant it. He did not say that, therefore now, you need to add your faith to it for it to be complete. No. He said, it is finished, and it means that those for whom the Father has sent me. Remember, Jesus was on a mission. Those for whom the Father had sent me, I will guarantee that they will be raised on the last day. When he said it is finished, he was saying, that I have accomplished that. I have guaranteed that by my death. And that's why after he said it is finished, he died. He had actually accomplished something. And so that is why we believe that Jesus died on the cross for only the elect. Only those who God had given, the God the Father had given to him. Now, we must give some credit to the other side. Then, Remember, both sides of this argument are looking to the scriptures. And so, I think they're, now, many of them, thankfully, do not believe that every person will be saved. Most of the time when you're having a discussion with someone on this issue, or even if you're struggling with this issue and you still believe that he died for everyone, you most certainly do not believe then that everyone will go to heaven. So at least we are not saying that you are what we would call a universalist. But we are saying that your thinking does lead to that. It can lead to that if you accept everything else that the Bible says about what Christ has done. If Christ has actually purchased he has actually ransomed and redeemed everyone, then everyone is redeemed. And if you, say, if you raise the issue of 
Unbelief is not unbelief a sin? Think about it. He says that why do people, if Christ died for everyone, why do people die? Why do people die and go to hell? Oh, because of unbelief. Well, is unbelief not a sin? Think about yourself. Before you believed, how many times did you reject the gospel? Was that sin not forgiven by Christ? I mean, before you became a believer, you were living in unbelief. Was that sin not paid for? When you believed, was that sin not forgiven? And so that means unbelief is not a special type of sin which cannot be forgiven. And so it isn't that uh, people, it is true people do not, will go to hell because they do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is also true to say that only those whom God only those whom God had chosen and only those for whom Christ died will be forgiven. Now, let's look at some universal passages. Two of the two basically I want us to look at two words. Two words which often cause people to believe this. And that, that is the word all and the word uh, world. So, let's start with the word all. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read this, uh, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Now, who is the one there who has died for all? It is Christ. And he says, so people read, one has died for all, and they assume that all there must mean every single individual. That's one of the verses that is claimed. But is that a sufficient understanding of the word all there? I don't think so. The word all there is qualified because he says, he goes on to say, Therefore, all have died. So, one has died for all, therefore all have died. So, who are the all for whom Christ died? It is the all who have therefore died. Now, what is this death that the all have died? If we read in Romans 6, we discover that when Christ died, those who are in him, they also died to sin. And so here I believe that's what is being referred to. He says, when he says that, uh, <clears throat> that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died, that, that therefore all have died refers to all have died to sin. All have died to the law. All those things for which Christ's death did for his people, they have died. They have died to it. But then look at what it goes on to say. He died for all <coughs> that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he's here saying that the death of Christ in a mystical way was also the death of a certain group of people. But that death was also 
for, for his death and his being raised also brought life to a certain group of people. Now we have to ask the question, this death to sin and being raised in newness of life, does it happen to everyone? No, it does not. Not everyone in the world is raised from the dead, or rather not everyone is, dies to sin when in Christ's death, and not everyone is raised to newness of life in Christ's resurrection. That's just a reality that we see. And so therefore, when he uses the word all there, he does not want us to understand it in terms of representing every single individual, but that all there refers to God's people. That is, the people for whom this death was meant. All of them, when Christ died, they also died. When Christ was raised, they were also raised to newness of life. The all there is qualified by that context. And the context there says that our sanctification, that what God is doing in us, has a connection to Christ's death and resurrection. I don't even think this verse here in 2 Corinthians is giving us a command that we ought to walk in. It's saying that God has, we died and God has raised us. He's talk, telling us about a reality which we have as believers. We are dead to sin and we've been raised to newness of life. Uh, so there is that. Another verse, but let's talk about one that talks about the world. First uh, John 2 verse 2. In First John 2 verse 2, uh, we read, and this is a difficult one, uh, it's a difficult one even for those who believe on this side to talk about. And so I will share what I think uh, is the meaning of this verse. So First John 2 and 2, he says, speaking of Christ, eh, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, all I have just said, if, you, if, if you're just, all I've been saying, if you just read this verse and try to, you can immediately say, ah, that destroys every single thing you've just been saying the last 10 minutes. But I think there are some key things that we need to see, which help us see that John is not here trying to say that Jesus Christ died for everyone. In the everyone, every single individual in the world, but he's trying to make another point. The first thing he sees, he says, he says of Christ that he is the propitiation for our sins. Now it does not say that he is he made propitiation for our sins. He said that Christ Himself is the propitiation of our sins. And I think that's significant because what John is trying to do there is point to Christ. As now, what is propitiation? Before I tell you what it's pointing to, propitiation we've said is the turning of God's wrath to favor through his death. And so, what John is saying here, remember, he has said in verse chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So, the focus there really is on. Jesus Christ as the one whom we go to 
as, because he's the advocate that we have as a father when we sin. And why, is, and why can we go to him? It's because he is the propitiation. He, it's not simply that he made, it's pointing to Christ as the one, to, he's the advocate because he, he's the one who, who is the propitiation. <coughs> but then also, he's, when he says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, in light of what the rest of the scriptures say, I think that it does not necessarily follow that you have to make the conclusion that that means every single individual. I think we can understand it to mean that John is here saying that this salvation is not only for us who are in the church or those who he's writing to, but for everyone. Everyone who goes to Christ finds an advocate before the Father. And so he is there speaking of the world as every, that Christ is done, that everyone who goes to him can receive this salvation. You could even say that, well, some people have said that he's making a distinction between Jew and Gentile. I'm not too convinced about that, but I would sufficiently, it would be sufficient for me to say that John is there saying that not just us, but every other person out there in the world who is a recipient of this, of Christ. Everyone who comes to Christ and everyone for whom Christ died is there in the world. And he's saying not just us who have been saved now, but even others who will be saved later. Or simply that Christ is the one, only one who can be an advocate, a sufficient advocate before God the Father. So it doesn't have to necessarily mean that every person, every single individual in the world. And I can say this, there are places where the word world is used where it would be unthinkable to think that it means every single individual. For example, when Caiaphas says that, or not Caiaphas, but the high priest say that the whole world has gone after Jesus. Well, of course, the whole world has not gone after Jesus. It, otherwise, that would include even those high priests who are rejecting Christ. They, they were not included in, when they said the whole world. It, just, it can mean a lot of people. It doesn't have to mean every single individual. Yeah. Then there's also one last thing before I open it up for a few questions because of time uh, is this. Uh, you know, if, if it was God's intention to die for everyone in the world, if it was God's intention that Christ's death was for everyone in the world, and I want you to really think about this, then the question is this, why is it that God did not make it possible for the gospel to be heard by everyone? Think about it. There are people who perish in their sins rightfully because they are guilty of their sins, but yet they die never ever hearing the gospel. Now, doesn't that sound like God has not planned himself well if he wanted Christ's death to have significance for everyone, but he does not make it possible for everyone to hear about Christ's death? So those are just some considerations. Uh, are there any questions? Any question? Maybe one or two before we close. Uh, 
Ah, okay. Ah, there is. I, I sort of have a comment. Okay. Um, uh, in, in this sense, uh, I can't say that Christ died for everyone, for the whole world, um, in, in a sense of two scenarios. That one, um, that the punishment for sin on the cross would show the severity of sin, to show that those who are in sin, that the only case is death, so that even Christ being imputed um, the sins of the many would show that if you are in sin, then the only destination is death. And for those who have believed and cast their sins upon, uh, and their sins have been casted upon Christ for their salvation, that's where you see that they have been saved for eternity. So that, in a sense, it still remains. Uh, it's for the whole world uh, in, in that way. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, James? I would also like to comment on, uh, especially the Armenians, who say that Christ died for everyone, they say that it's upon the responsibility of those people who he died for uh, to believe in Christ, and if they will not believe, they perish. But the question, the objection that we raise is, um, if it is their unbelief um, that takes them to hell, and they say that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, the sins of these people, and since unbelief is one of the sins, why is God taking people to hell uh, for not believing in him, for unbelief? And so it just comes to them, for them to answer that question. <coughs> yeah. Uh, because there, there is no, if Christ paid for all those sins, then they are covered. Uh, but now it's not upon the responsibility of the sinner. Of course, they say that Christ made salvation possible. Uh, he did not really accomplish it to the everyone complete. So that it is the sinner, by putting faith in Christ, who connects all the dots and now he is saved. Yeah, I wanted to highlight on that of unbelief. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, thank you. It, it is true, unbelief. So, the Mark, sorry, uh, Mike, and then this gentleman, yeah, and then I think that will be the last. Is, or is there someone who has a burning question here? No, okay, so Mike. Okay, um, my question is, would you clarify on expiation in light of justification. I think I, I still don't see the clear cut line, but then, okay. yeah, I would I'll just want to, to understand. Yeah, so expiation, I said, is the removal of guilt. Uh, so Christ, by his death, removed the guilt of the elect. And by doing that, he turned God's wrath to favor. Now, how is that related to justification? Well, it 
How did Christ uh, remove our guilt? It's by taking it upon himself. So there's that one half of justification where Christ, our sins are imputed unto him. And so we become innocent. And then when he, and then his righteousness is imputed to us and then we become righteous. So that's the, so expiation has to do with the, that first half of justification rather than its entirety. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay, praise Jesus. Amen. I'm a seeker. Uh, I would like to comment on Christ dying for the world. Uh -huh. I think uh, that Jesus died for the whole world, the whole of us, because I don't want to believe that he had favorism. And so it's for us to choose, because the Lord uh, gave us a free will that we can choose. Whether we want to walk into the life of Christ and gain eternity, or we choose death. He says, look, I said before you, life or death, choose wisely. So I believe that he died for all of us, for, for, for those who are in the world and the sinners. That's why in 1 John 2, 2, he says, uh, even those sinners, I died for them. So which means they are... It doesn't of, say that, does it? What does 1 John 2, 2 say? I've just read it right now. It says he is the propitiation of, for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Uh -huh. So I believe for, for them come to cry. Okay. Uh, have you been here throughout the whole class? Yes? I came. You came late. Later. Okay. So uh, we have dealt with that. So perhaps what I can do because of time, we can say that uh, I will, we can talk afterwards and I can show you why I disagree with that view. Is that okay? Uh, everyone else will, would be in agreement that we have actually dealt with that. So next time come earlier uh, so that you get the whole, but thank you for your contribution. Uh, by the way, the issues that you've raised are real issues that we have to deal with as we come to the Bible, as we think about the meaning of Christ's death. So uh, thank you for sharing your views. I, may disagree, I disagree with them, but yeah, we will talk about it after. Uh, so thank you all for go, taking this, going on this journey with me on discussing the death of Christ. I know I, I have spoken quickly because there was a lot to cover. I hope I have been able to answer most of the questions you may have had in your heart or to more fully confirm you in the faith which you have held. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you this morning, uh, having meditated upon the death of Christ and what it means for us. We are so grateful to you, O oh God, because you sent your Son into the world. And this, not just to make salvation possible, but to make it, to actually pay for it, to accomplish it, so that those who look to you can say that Christ has truly saved me, has truly done all that I needed for my salvation. 
Thank you for giving your son and for showing us your love in this way. Help us to walk uh, in light of this truth. Help us to walk in light of the newness of life that you have given to us uh, in, by Christ's resurrection. And grant then that we shall be examples for others and that by our lives we may bring others to ask us to give them a reason for the hope that we have. Please hear us this day, O Lord, and help us as we uh, prepare for the morning service that we shall do so uh, in a manner which is pleasing in your sight and grant that our worship service uh, shall be of great edification to our souls. And these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.